Stop it! Don't open that door! Welcome to another exciting, wonderful, fantastic episode of the Masters of Unlocking podcast. I have it on good authority that this episode is fantastic. Uh, You may be asking how I know that. Well, I was hanging out in the future um, last week. Oh, side note, P.S. I do own a time machine. Um, Okay, back to the story. Hanging out in the future, and I was talking to my future friend. Hey, future uh, Caleb. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's right. I do have a real future friend. Uh, named Future Caleb. I was talking to Future Caleb, and uh, and and he said, "Yeah, your your episode number twenty is fantastic." And I said, "That is that is amazing." Um, so I'm coming back here in time to tell all of you about that. Uh, so that's great. However, uh, a little curveball in the story here: um, the definition of the word "fantastic" has changed dramatically in the future, uh, and I'm not going to tell you how it's changed because that's that's half the fun of life, right? Is to uh, well, it's exactly half the fun of life. 50% of life is, you know, all the majesty of life, greatness, uh, living, loving, all that kind of stuff. The other 50% is learning how words change. And <laughs> reading, reading. The, reading the small print. <laughs> yes, that's that's it. So uh, that, those are the two spectrums that our lives live off of. Uh, so thus concludes another amazing extemporaneous intro from Caleb J. Ross. Uh, let's get into the intro portion of the podcast. Welcome to episode 20 of the <laughs> Masters of Unlocking podcast. We are a different kind of video game podcast. One of us is an author. That's me, also known as Jill Sandwich. And the other one is a collector and recovering game store owner, also known as Chris's Blood. That's not true. I've already used that joke before, but I think those are really good morning DJ names, Jill Sandwich and Chris's Blood. Uh, I am the author and the video game lover. I forgot to mention that I'm also a video game lover. That would probably be more appropriate to my position in this podcast than just being an author. Uh, I am Caleb J. Ross, and with me, as always, is VG Collectaholic. VG stands for Vigi Games. Vigi. So he, yes, so he is the collector uh, portion. And we dive into the business, economics, and psychology of video games. And we're going to be talking about some cool stuff this time. We're going to be talking about a college that is giving away Fortnite scholarships. Uh, We're going to be talking about a couple of pre-orders. The Atari VCS, uh, which I believe stands for Virtually a Console Simulator, Mm because we really don't know a whole lot about it yet. Uh, And also Capcom uh, releasing Mega Man 2 and Mega Man X on cartridge form. Uh, We're going to talk about drugs and games. Uh, Not the the, uh, digital pixelated kind, but the actual real drugs hidden inside of video games. We're going to talk about loot boxes being illegal in Belgium. Valve acquires Campo Santo, the developer of Firewatch. And the upcoming, I can't remember the name of the game, but it's uh, upcoming. Um, the experimental game Lost Levels, we might talk a little bit about as well if we have time. Uh, I am, uh, I, well, we'll talk more about that. And we're going to talk about the main event, which is, incredibly, PlayStation makes lots of money. Uh, but no, it's more than that, but that's essentially going to be the gist of it. Uh, how are you, Scott? How, how are you, how have you been, uh, and how are you going to be after this podcast? You know, I've been pretty great. I've been pretty great. I've been unboxing video games pretty much steady for like the last week. That's, that's like your heaven just to unpackage box, uh, unpackage games, right? It's even more my heaven because as I unbox them, I like clean them off and put them into my database and mm. yep. 
Yep. I, uh, we, the the bloodline in my family of librarianisms runs strong. <laughs> we have talked about in the past how uh, the element of collecting aside from the object itself is the ceremony of collecting. And I guess, and, and I think we've talked about in the past, the ceremony of, you know, taking off the labels and, and like the sticker pricing stickers and things like that. We talked about in a previous episode, but also, yeah, the, the ceremony of just inputting it into a catalog and organizing it and that sort of thing um, is comforting in a weird way. That's as close. To, that's my only real collector attribute is I do love organization and cataloging and things like that. I feel like for the last week, my hands have just permanently smelt like goo gone. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you added gone to the end of that sentence because uh, you could anyway. Uh, so I imagine that with all of the, these unpacking of these many, many games, you've probably been just playing a ton of games, right? I mean, now granted, this podcast is only, you know, usually about an hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes. So I don't want to take up the entire time talking about all of the games that you had most certainly been playing over the last couple of weeks. So uh, just give me, I don't know, maybe like a half a dozen or so. I've been playing Sticker Crusher. Um, <laughs> Sticker Crusher 2, Don't Tear the Label, uh, both of which are fantastic. Uh, they really, sound amazing. Yeah, yeah, sort of a turn-based strategy. Uh, you you remove a sticker, and then you enter it into a database, and you set it on a on a pile. And then, you know, you start over from the beginning of, of, of the stage of the turn. You go to the next game and repeat. It's hmm. cathartic. It's real cathartic. Wow. It's sort of a walking simulator slash strategy game. Hmm. Be right up your alley. <laughs> it does. It sounds amazing. I could virtually collect instead of actually collecting. Yeah. And I will. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, I, so I, I ended up buying. Um, I touched on this briefly last episode, but I ended up buying a guy's Xbox collection. Um, he was getting out of the getting out of the collecting biz, so to speak. And. If any of you have ever gone and checked out the Instagram account Halo Collector Guy, uh, this is the the gentleman who I bought his original Xbox collection from. But that's that's fine. It's 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 a cool collection. It's a lot of Xbox games, a lot of originals, putting me well on my way to completing the set. But what you should really do is go check out his Instagram and check out his Halo collection, which he's also selling off and he's parting ad off because nobody could afford to buy the whole thing from him because it's it's astounding. <laughs> he's got like every Halo figure ever created. He's got Xbox systems, Halo copies that are all signed by the dev teams that are like... He's got developer promos. He's got um, store promos. He's got... Uh, demo machines it's it's astounding i i don't even know what the value of that collection is but whatever it is it it's definitely well 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 into the six figures just that the is, halo portion combined that's crazy that's yeah. crazy it's astounding so what's he going to change his uh, instagram handle to now probably money counter guy <laughs> um should be it that's probably a that's going to work as a better handle on his tinder profile too i would assume yeah. probably probably he's swimming in his dough like scrooge mcduck um <laughs> no but he's he's a great guy I chatted with him um i found his instagram uh, via the he had posted his collection his halo collection up on ebay actually and that's how i stumbled across it and went to check out his 
his Instagram page and realized that I'd seen some of it before because he had it all organized immaculately and displayed very um, uniquely. And so I had recognized it and went was sit while I was sifting through his Instagram, he mentioned that he was selling off his original Xbox collection as well. So uh, I went ahead and snagged that because, nice. yeah, I was going for an Xbox set, but I was only about there's just under uh, 900 games that were released in North America for the Xbox, just over 900 if you count all of the different platinum hits versions and limited editions and things like that. Um, but I only had about 250 or so of them. So I had a long ways to go and it was clear at Midwest gaming classic that Xbox was picking up steam. Uh, mm. A lot of people were looking for it, scouring it as most people sort of projected with, um, the, backward compatibility right on the xbox one uh being pretty popular and they were releasing a new wave of compatible games and so when i got a chance to really jump start the collection at a just rock bottom price i couldn't beat it couldn't nice. couldn't avoid it right so um that can't be the only thing you've picked up recently right and i know uh we we usually in these podcasts just for new listeners have a uh a a collector's tips section here um but uh scott uh did not provide that i'm calling you out scott mm, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i've been uh, too busy putting into effect the tips from the last two episodes on sticker and marker removal and i mm. uh, was too caught up in that to you, be bothered to try and uh, put together collector's <laughs> tips episode you practice three. what you preach i do, uh, can't I do. can't I do. argue with that um, so certainly you've, you've probably picked up something other than, uh, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of Xbox games. Is that, is that probably accurate? It is. It is accurate. Uh, I mentioned a couple episodes back that I was in a little bit of a lull, but if Midwest gaming classic did anything for me, it really jump started my, my purchasing again. Um, I didn't buy a whole lot over the last few months, but since Midwest Gaming Classic, I've really been... Just 700 Xbox games. I just want to interrupt you there, but go ahead. Yeah, just... <laughs> yeah, just those. <laughs> but I also made a... I carved a big chunk out of one of my 2018 gaming goals. So several episodes back toward the beginning of the year, Caleb and I both laid out our 2018 gaming goals. And my one of my goals was to complete several uh, sets this year. Uh, I think they were mostly older sets, mostly retro stuff. It was like uh, the Intellivision and and um, the Odyssey 2, which I, I crossed that one off the list earlier this year. So that's one goal down. And I'm well on my way to completing my second goal, which is the Atari Lynx. Um, I have... A, I've got I've got a modded Atari Lynx with the McWill replacement screen in it. It's gorgeous that way, uh, but I wanted to get the collection. And since I have uh, the um, Lynx SD card, which is a, a flash card, I can do all I can play all of the games on my Lynx with the flash via flash card. So I decided that since I have a complete sealed jaguar set and jaguar cd set i would also go for a complete sealed link set and the links is only 73 games that were released during its life cycle here in the states so it's not a giant 
uh, set, and a lot of games can still be found sealed because the links didn't sell all that well. So there's a lot of new old stock lying around. Um, and I bought a bunch of those games. I added about a dozen more this last week, so I'm now up to 59 out of 73. I have 14 left to go. Um, a couple of them are pretty rare and tough to find so it it'll be a challenge to try to complete this even if it it doesn't seem so by the 59 out of 73 progress but these these things seem to be i don't want to say falling in your lap because that denigrates the amount of time that it takes to actually find these things but it feels to me like when you strike gold you strike a lot of gold so i would not be surprised if in a couple of months, all of a sudden, you have 14, the exact 14 games you need that someone basically tells you. I don't know. <laughs> Again, it's, it's from the outsider looking in, it's way easier than it actually is. But you seem to be uh, striking some gold is what it seems like. I get some stuff on eBay, but a lot of it ends up coming from um, you know, other folks on Instagram, um, other folks that are posting things for sale on forums like Atari Age, Nintendo Age, things like that. So there's definitely a, you have to you have to do some legwork, and I do most of my shopping online, so I do a lot of uh, a lot of digital legwork, so to speak. Because nice. legwork, legwork, physical legwork that sounds, that sounds exhausting. Oh, don't even mention that. Gross, Ugh. icky. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. What uh, What about you? I, I know you're not buying games, but I think something recently came out that's <laughs> not really a game. So I might give you a pass. Thank you. I might you. give you a pass. Thank you. Um, yeah. Speaking of legwork and actually doing things, uh, I did jump into the Labo thing. So I, I was very much into Nintendo Labo from the very first article I read about it long, you know, in January or whenever it was, it was announced. Um, it's just one of those things that just seemed really, really interesting to me. And I won't even play the card that it's because I have two kids and oh, I want to buy it for the kids. I would have bought it for myself. It's, it's just a very cool thing. I'm loving the hell out of it. Uh, I bought the variety pack, which is a, a pack of about six or so, I think different constructions that you can build out of cardboard and the Nintendo Switch. Um, and it's very, it, it's cool. It's, it feels to me like the obvious comparison would be it's, Le it's Lego, but with cardboard. Um, but I'd go further than that because Lego doesn't really do a good job of necessarily explaining or trying to teach anything. It's really just follow these instructions to build this cool thing and there you go. Um, there's been other Lego type things like your connect connects, I think they're called, and other types of systems like that where they do verge a little bit more in the like actual engineering realm and try to teach kids, you know, pulley systems and things like that. But then uh, Switch is the natural evolution of that. This our Nintendo Labo is the natural evolution of that, where it does teach you a lot about what's going on. It doesn't necessarily teach you the uh, the electronics that are going on within the switch you know that would be a little bit advanced but it does teach you it forces you to sort of think creatively if you want to build your own things um there's dedicated spots in the software uh that show you in real time how the system is working when you use it so if you're playing the piano there's a cardboard piano that you can build um there's a part in the switch where you can you know basically look at an x-ray of the piano and as you press buttons it'll show you what's firing and what's triggering various things um and then there's a section that i haven't dived too much into but i definitely plan on to maybe this weekend with my kids and that's the garage or the secret lab they often they call it where you can start really creating some of your own 
things with uh, with Nintendo Labo. And, and online, there's a lot of really cool videos about different creations and stuff that people are doing. But, you know, give this thing a couple of years, and I think we'll see some just incredibly art, uh, uh, complicated, crazy things that are being built with this. Um, I made a video about it called One Week with Labo on my channel at uh, youtube.com forward slash Caleb J. Ross. And uh, that kind of outlines a lot of the things uh, that I took from it, a lot of things that I really like about it. Uh, One of the things, since I am here co-hosting with a collector, that I will say is uh, Nintendo Labo is definitely not for collectors. Um, It kind of does two things that I know would make you cry, uh, Scott, and that is one... To enjoy the thing, you have to destroy the thing. Like that's mm. that's part of it. You kind of have to destroy it. There is no keeping it in box. There's no uh, there's no enjoyment to even be had by keeping it in box. Now I know that seems weird because video games, by their nature, are not things that you could really keep in box and enjoy, and uh, uh, you know enjoy the actual game. But at least with video games, you can sort of see that collection thing, and you have a lot of them, and it's just aesthetically pleasing. There's not a whole lot of that with Labo, so uh, you kind of have to open it to get any sort of enjoyment. And as soon as you open it, you're then told to basically tear it apart and destroy it. The other reason why it's definitely worth staying away for collectors is that the destroying is folding of cardboard. And I know that that it, it's it was so weird to me, even as a non-collector, the first time that I, I folded a piece of the cardboard... There was a part of me that like physically hurt because I was like, this goes against everything <laughs> I'm supposed to. I'm not supposed to do this. And it was weird. Like I, I even hesitated to firmly crease even after it was folded once. It was it was it was just a, such a strange uh, thing. But, you know, maybe for collectors out there who are trying to uh, rid themselves of their of their addiction to collection, collecting, they could buy Labo and sort of get all these folds out, you know, and realize like how cathartic it could possibly be to crease cardboard and possibly that could break someone of the of the addiction i don't know you know civilized society needs rules caleb j ross (laughs) (laughs) oh man i I don't don't like i don't like rules i don't like nintendo introducing all this chaos and anarchy (laughs) that's what i don't like i'm i'm not having it it's very strange and and the the end result is also much too large to really display um it's you know what are you gonna do with it after you play with it you know so Labo's not ju- Labo or Labo? Did we decide on how this thing needs to be pronounced? I say is Labo like, because it's laboratory. That's is that's it kind laboratory of laboratory on Labo. Then, then you wouldn't you say Labo, laboratory? You know, wouldn't Labo. you? Labo. Yeah, yeah. Would, maybe yeah. you would. Maybe you. So it's Labo, Labo, or La, 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 Labo. <laughs> that Labo. that that one sounds completely <laughs> wrong. Let's not. <laughs> let's not. Let's not. Use I'm that sure. One. I'm sure with the build-it-yourself garage set, someone out there will find a way to turn cardboard into a fleshlight. Uh-huh. I'm pretty sure that's going to happen. So. That that probably happened first, frankly. <laughs> You're right. Uh, <laughs> this so, is the actual selling of this Nintendo Labo is just a clever ploy to get people acclimated to the idea, so that Nintendo can start selling sex toys in a year from now. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. porn usually drives technological advancement and adoption. You know, is mm-hmm. instrumental in the, the VHS beating Betamax. It was in, instrumental in DVD, instrumental in Blu-ray, um, instrumental in v- vibration-proof batteries. Um, I, I, Is that I, really a thing? I, I know. <laughs> Not okay, that I'm aware I like, of. <laughs> <laughs> I, okay, all right. <laughs> uh, so now, 
tell me more about this labo because I don't I haven't been paying attention to it at all for all mm-hmm. of the reasons you just said. But one thing that stuck out in my mind that I was not aware of uh, was you were talking about how it's not restrictive to just the you're building the widget that the package you bought is designed to build. So I guess in my mind, I envisioned it as more of a like uh, like a paper craft sort of thing where mm-hmm. you cut, you punch out the cardboard and it tells you put slot A into tab B or I guess you put tabs into slots, don't you? Yeah. You do. Yes. See, Lots I don't fold or cut cardboard at all. I don't know how this works. <laughs> so... Um, it's yeah so there there's a series of of instructions to tell you how to build six very specific things with very specific end results and a lot of ways you can almost think of that as only half of the uh, enjoyment um and that's really to kind of teach you the mechanics so it would be the same as following like if you wanted to develop a video game using you know uh using coding and software and stuff like that it would be the equivalent of maybe watching a bunch of tutorials to figure out how the game engine works. Um, so that's really kind of what you see in the commercials, and that's kind of what's sold to you is the tutorial to figure out how the how the the engine works. Um, then the rest of the enjoyment is trying to stretch that to do things that you want it to do. That there's a there's a I don't know the name of it, but essentially there's a piece of software on the uh, on the switch cart that is that allows you to do a series of if then statements if this then that statements so you can say if i press this key on the piano then i want the uh the left joy con to vibrate or uh some of the things that i've seen online someone made a bank where uh, it's just a cardboard box with a slot in the top and when you put in a quarter uh, one side of the switch lights up. If you put in a dime, a different side of the switch lights up. Um, and so you can see, and the way they do that is, is you can actually, you know, you take a picture of, of the quarter and the, and the, uh, Joy-Con's IR camera, um, will recognize that shape, that size. And so now you have this thing where you can say, if something of that size passes in front of the camera, then do something else. And so you can you can re- get really creative and elaborate w- with it when you do this kind of thing. Um, and I, I'm really, really I like there, there's going to be people who are just way more creative than I am trying like making things work. I want to see someone just do go crazy Rube Goldberg with it and just have really intricate machines that are all kind of designed and governed by this whole Labo system. I would love to see that. Um, I would love to see, uh, I don't know. I, I'm just really excited to see kind of where it goes. And it's interesting how, you know, when, when they released switch, they talked about, um, the, uh, the HD rumble kind of thing. So there's like, it's a very finely tuned, uh, rumble feature. And that plays a lot into Labo as well. Um, one of the built-in products that you, one of the built-in toys that you can create or toy cons, they call them is essentially they call it an RC car, but it's essentially a, a like a bug shaped cardboard box thing with like six legs. You put the two Joy Cons on either side of it, but the way that the Joy Cons are situated is that one side, let's say the top half of the Joy Con, is locked in really tightly to the side of this bug, while the bottom half is a little bit more. Uh, uh, it, it's not locked in as tight, so there's a little bit of give there. And when you first are trying to piece this and, and connect it together, you almost think like it's broken. You're like, oh, the Joy-Con doesn't fit snugly in there all the way. That's that's kind of broken. That's lame. But then you realize the point of that is so that one side of the Joy-Con can have a little bit more freedom when it vibrates. 
And that additional freedom on one side of the Joy-Con is enough to actually propel this bug thing forward. Um, and when you realize that, then you start thinking about all the other things that you might be able to use. That That's how you get forward momentum out of something. So you might be able to like use that in something else. And again, I'm not creative enough to figure out what that else thing is. But, uh, but there will be plenty of people who are. Um, and it's just, I don't know, I, I could go on and on and on about it. Uh, and it's really, it's just very, very, very cool. Um, I'm hoping that people don't start creating as conscious, as, as weird as the sound. So one of the big gripes, uh, that, that was, uh, that, that was surrounding, um, Labo prior to its release was its use of cardboard. That seems cheap. It seems like it won't last very long. It's problematic, whatever. But now that it's launched and I've had and I've experienced using the cardboard, I would say that there's really no other way it could be done that way. I don't want to. I don't want someone to create a plastic version of these cardboard things and make it permanent, right? I want people to be able to um, make it themselves using, you know, using using cardboard, and I, I want them to be able to feel free to mess things up and 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 just do things incorrectly and have the freedom to experiment and everything like that. Um, I, I don't know. I'm just very. It's very cool. That is cool. It, yeah. As you were disca- describing the building of all these sort of Frankensteinian, Frankensteinian, <laughs> sure. Frankensteuvian <laughs> devices, I envisioned somebody building the What Remains of Edith Finch house out of Labo. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. yeah. Although, wouldn't have, uh, would it, what would it actually do? Or would it just be, you know, it would just look cool? I'm a collector. It just needs to look cool. <laughs> <laughs> As long as it comes pre-built and it's in its package already, yeah, then then it then it counts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't even really need to be in the package. Just as long as the package looks cool. There you go. That's maybe the box is the maybe like they should use Labo to actually create the packaging for games. That way you can kind of enjoy Ooh, both of them. You know? Deep, deep, That'd be fun. That'd yeah, be fun. Well, what do you say we move on to some of our current events? Let's do it. Ooh. I would love to. Um, I'll let you start off since uh, since this first article is one you came up with, um, and then I will quickly interrupt and give my thoughts. How about that? Sounds like a plan. <laughs> that that almost sounds like we've done that before. I, yeah, I, I do that, I think, every time. <laughs> so this first article is uh, an article of, we've, we've touched on this before about how esports is really sort of growing up in front of our eyes, right? It's it's becoming legitimized. It, there are television networks being launched to just cover esports there are professional leagues there are current sports franchise owners like the owner of the patriots robert Kraft, who are diving into the esports arena and purchasing franchise rights and now universities are are really starting to pick up the pace and and we've seen quite a few uh, announcements of video game scholarships at various universities well a university in ohio ashland university is the first to offer a Fortnite scholarship uh, it'll be a four-player team and ashland university is uh, also dabbled in esports before they've also got teams for overwatch and league of legends two of the franchises that are more um, used to having teams at universities and and scholarships in play um, but I just think it, as we see more and more of these news stories, it's interesting to me how much of a, a culture shift that is. I, I work in the TV industry, and when we were pitched about a year ago, year and a half ago, uh, the first pitch of a television network that was all 
focused entirely on esports. Uh, it was me and a couple of the the execs from our, our programming team that decide, you know, which program which programming content gets signed to be on our platform. Uh, and they they sort of sat there incredulously and and were completely baffled, right? And these are guys who are are, are folks, right? There there was guys and gals who were typically in their fifties to to sixties, some of them, uh, and were more or less completely oblivious to to what was going on. And these are smart people who understand entertainment, understand sports, understand uh, the media industry, but the the question after the pitch was given and and that was posed to me as as everybody knows there that that I'm a gamer and and you know the 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 geek of the floor the the question was who would watch someone play video games right <laughs> and i think that is the hurdle that um needs to needs people to get over in order, especially older generations, in order for esports to really become ubiquitous, rather than just aging the older generation out, and I wonder how much traction it can get um, with that generation who are parents and grandparents now, right? If their children are growing up playing esports in school, right? There's a startup called Play Versus, which has just launched to organize esports in high schools. It's pairing with the the NFHS, which is basically the high school version of the NCAA. Uh, it's the National Federation of High Schools, I believe. Um, and they're bringing esports into the high school scene. So I'm wondering if you're going to get parents, you know, traction with parents because they get exposed to it and exposed to video games as more than just the the thing that Johnny does down in the basement. I think that probably is going to be it. I was watching a a series on I believe it's the Vice channel on YouTube maybe. It, there's a there's a series called Waypoint. Um it might be its own channel, I'm not really sure, but uh, it talked a lot. It talked about different sort of gaming cultures and everything. And one of them was a, I believe, Street Fighter two or Street Fighter, uh, not two, Street Fighter, whatever number they're at now, uh, esports tournament that was really really big. Uh, and there was one kid there whose uh, mother was, uh, you know, in sort of the the behind the scenes interviewee type things. She kind of said she doesn't really get it. She doesn't really understand it. But she went because this was apparently the furthest this guy had gotten in the tournaments. And so he had her come along and she was ecstatic, crazy in the crowd, like cheering him on was like, you know, she was doing what a mother would do to support her child, even if she didn't understand it. But I could also sense that it wasn't just her cheering for the child. She actually got into the into the game and into the whole environment and everything. And so probably will be introducing parents to that side of it. That's going to be helpful. Um, I think there's also got to be a certain amount of people realizing that watching people play games is not that strange uh people have been doing that when they watch sports on tv forever it's it's really there's no there's no difference and i know it sounds sort of lame to say that there's no difference but there really isn't you're 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 not playing the game of football you're watching people play football um growing up in arcades there'd be crowds of people around a cabinet because people like watching other people play video games it's just a thing um not everyone wants to actually 
endure the stress associated with a video game, but they still want to be there to enjoy the sort of euphoria that comes along with it and the adrenaline that comes along with it. They want the adrenaline without the stress. And so I, I think people just need to be sort of confronted with that and need to be exposed to it. And when they are, that'll it'll happen. And I think you're right. It'll probably having, having the parents be involved is going to be um, pretty, pretty important. I think. Yeah. I think, I think there's something that is entertaining about watching anyone who is a master of their craft. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a, a traditional sport. It doesn't have to be the Olympics. It doesn't have to be esports. I mean, you, you things like all of the the shows that are on now that are you know, just watching people at work. You know, things like American Pickers or mm-hmm. Pawn Stars or you know, Flip This House or you know all of those types of things that are just people doing their everyday jobs and but they're good at it and people like to learn things and like to see other people who are good at what they do. I think it's 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 entertainment is more than just oh this is something that uh, is exciting to me. Yeah. Um the last thing I'll mention on this is uh, the amount of the scholarship. I don't know if you mentioned it earlier, but according to the article, it's a $4,000 scholarship, which in the scheme of scholarships, especially if we consider this in the realm of sports scholarships, feels to me like kind of a joke, um, especially if a joke in the sense that it's a, an incredibly low amount, um, especially if the players on these teams are meant to be competitive, like to a national degree, if they're meant to really you know put in the hours to get good. Um, that's not very much money to pay someone for that amount of time that they would have to dedicate to it. So I feel like uh, that's sort of, and it could be just, you know, a scholarship can come from anywhere. So this literally could be, uh, there's funds that people have gotten together and they've decided that they're going to offer it to, you know, one or two of these esports athletes and, and, and they get some good PR out of it and everything like that. But at the same time, um, it just doesn't seem like enough. Uh, and maybe I'm totally wrong there but it just doesn't seem like much well and i think some of it too is there are pretty strict ncaa rules around that govern scholarships and so ashland university i'm just looking at their site their page on the ncaa website and they're a division two school and once you get outside of division one in ncaa classifications the scholarships related to sports any sort of sports that's governed by the ncaa um go downhill pretty significantly Mm -hmm. so i think once you get out of division one you can no longer do things like offer full scholarships and i think it's much more that sort of uh token you know almost more like a stipend sort of thing that can be can be offered at that level but um, yeah i completely agree and i guess you know looking back in in the early days of of football i'm sure they weren't giving full rides to you know um (laughs) our great grandparents in the early 1900s either. So uh, it's a start. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. You know what else is a start <laughs> or a finish? <laughs> I hope for anyway, go ahead. I'm, I'm stealing your thunder. A kickstart. Oh, not a kickstart. Oh, I see where you're going with a, it. What is it? A Indiegogo. Indiegogo, which is like Kickstarter, but even more wild westy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's fair. Oh boy. The Atari box is just the thing that will not go away. Now <laughs> renamed the Atari VCS, which I think you were pretty pretty spot on. The virtually a console simulator. I like that. <laughs> mm-hmm, I like mm-hmm. that. Trademark. Yeah. Or copyright or whatever the term is that people use when they're coining a term. Yeah. Yeah. Trademark. 
Trademark. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so not excited. So part of me is, is morbidly curious about what this thing will do because right now the latest we got, we did receive some additional information. Um, we did receive some information about its capabilities, about what it's going to come packaged with. Um, it, it, a confirmation of no physical media, or at least as confirmation as you can get. But I, I think that was always the, the, the case. Um, so it, it feels to me just kind of like a low-power gaming computer is essentially what, what it is. Um, they did drop the price. It's at, I think, $199 now. And I think when it was originally announced, it was going to be a $299 or $250 to $300 um, uh, a package. Well, but I think the $200 price apparently doesn't include controllers or anything. Uh, yes, you Because are it correct. says in the article that other packages will include the classic joystick and modern controller. So the 200 <laughs> must be the entry-level uh, bare-bones, you know, super fantastic edition. <laughs> well, if, it's, uh, if there is Bluetooth, which there is, then hopefully you could just use one of your other better controllers in this situation anyway. The controller they have is very much a standard. It looks, uh, it's a very much a standard uh, like switch controller essentially, with even has two uh, essentially home and start buttons or whatever you want to call them kind of right in the center at the top. It, it's very much a standard typical modern controller. I think we're, we're at a point now where we understand how controllers should work and look. And uh, we've kind of reached the pinnacle of that, I think. So it, w- it would be absurd for anyone to try to make a controller that doesn't look like your standard Xbox, PlayStation 4, Switch Pro controller. Um, so it's, yeah, it, I'm, I'm more really curious in the sense that I do want to see what kind of support it's going to get from developers. If it really is just a Linux-based uh, PC gaming computer that comes bundled with 20 games that you can get for free that you can probably play for free in the in, on a computer browser then it's it's pretty terrible um but I, it's only time will tell i'm still not interested at all is is there any part of you that's interested in this thing not even a little bit <laughs> um they it it does look kind of neat i like the sort of um modern spin on the Atari 2600, the original wood green Atari 600. But beyond that, my interest is utterly void. And any any minuscule, uh, infinitesimal amount of interest I may have had, they killed with the no physical media. Right, I right. Zero interest whatsoever. Yeah. Um, I, I just think, I, I, I go back, keep going back to the article that I think it was in uh, the register from a month ago or so where they had gone to, I think it was GDC and the Atari box folks had sent like their, their marketing rep to GDC and they weren't even really part of GDC. They were in like the motel eight across the street and were debuting the, I think this was the first time people could actually see see it get hands-on with it and hands-on with it not in the the effect that it worked but hands-on with the physical thing and the joysticks and the the author of the article was just talking about how it 
it basically they had no answers to any questions they the atari the controller there the atari joystick that they had was effectively just a, a generic usb controller that they had for like effect and the controller the actual controller that you see in that picture on the um on the article at engadget was more or less just a shell and a concept and they had no oh, idea man. how it was going to work and they're they the entire article in the register was just talking over and over about how this thing was it looked like an utter an utter failure right out of the gate um even their marketing guy like had no basically had no clue what what he was what he was doing god that's insane yeah I think the biggest miss they have here, other than just it existing, is the fact that it doesn't play physical Atari carts. Um, there's not really, a, uh, in fact, I, I can only think of one clone system on the market that plays 2600 carts. Um, Hyperkin had a Retron. Actually, I don't know if I don't, I don't know if it was fully released. To be honest, the Retron 77. I don't know that it actually ever got released yet. But um, if it if it has that would be to my mind the only clone console on the market to play old atari games and this it that would have been something that could have actually struck my interest a little bit is if it was able to play physical carts physical atari carts um and you know upscale those uh, you know not that you necessarily need hd resolution for blocks on a screen but it would have been nice to have and that's that's probably a big miss Uh, that'd be nice if they if they and and it couldn't cost a lot uh, production wise to to add that in there you it's such I, I don't know it seems crazy people always say you know hey well why do you need atari games in 4k right or 1080p or upscaled or whatever but really having an output that's in the same native resolution as your display it streamlines it, it minimizes the lag and mm. it minimizes the reliance, your picture's reliance on whatever crappy upscaler is in your TV, especially if you have a, you know, a a more moderately priced TV or a budget TV, because those TVs, the they're going to put all of the all of the technology that they can into the the screen itself and as little they're going to cut corners in all the other areas whether it's the speakers or the the processing power or the upscaler that are in it and as you degrade those pro those devices within the tv it's going to anytime it has to rely on those and actually upscale anything it's going to not only deteriorate the picture that you're getting but it's going to introduce more and more lag and more and more processing lag so well, it's it's cool to have the stuff that's in in native resolution, not for any reason related to the resolution of the game, but actually to really the playability and and limiting the introduction of of display lag. That was a very nice way of schooling me, Scott. I appreciate the the uh, way you approach that. Uh, it makes me feel as though you care about my feelings, and thank you. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> you know, so if you Michael had... Arts, the guy who was in that article, the their chief operating officer, I don't, I don't w- want to like hold back and school because <laughs> it's it's hilarious how they trolled him in this article. He they like the I'm going to quote the article here because it's it's great. They they say Mike doesn't know lots of things about the Atari VCS, standing for Atari Video Game System, Video Computer System, which is odd because he's the exec in charge of it, but. For those things he doesn't know, he makes up for it with all of the things he does know, none of which he can tell us about. Here we go. Launch date? Can't say. Interface? Can't tell you. Hardware manufacturer? Can't tell you. 
games de- games developer partners we're talking to that target market we can't say <laughs> like what <laughs> those are all of the things that you need to have a product like that paragraph <laughs> if you can't answer those things you don't have a product oh that's awesome <laughs> it's it's crazy cuz they're alienating Atari fans and they're not getting new fans they would do much better using the Atari name and going 100% just nostalgia and creating an Atari clone system. Like they would just a 2600 clone system. They'd be doing so much better just to do that. But then again, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not on their marketing team. Frankly, they would be doing better if they were partnering with real, real doll at this point. (laughs) That's a good question. If you had $400, would you buy one, uh, inside collector's edition or two Atari VCSs? I would probably buy the Inside Collector's Edition. At least that's an amorphous blob, you know, that it is actually intended to not do anything, whereas this <laughs> one is supposed to do something and probably won't. <laughs> uh, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, that was a laugh cough. <laughs> uh, but that's not the only that's not the only pre-order out there that is uh, confusing and weird and crazy. Tell, tell me about this other one. Oh, boy. You know, it feels like we just talked about this, like, the last time Capcom and IM8-Bit got in bed together and made delicious, delicious, beautiful, beautiful, reproductive crap. <laughs> oh. oh, that's great. Mega um, Man. Mega yeah. Man. I, I will say this. So just for anybody who is out of the loop, IM8-Bit and Capcom are continuing their partnership before they released a limited edition Street Fighter II cartridge that sold out. They produced 5,500 of them, and they sold out before launch. They sold for 100 bucks plus, I think, $30 shipping, something crazy like that. Now, this is a game that you can buy the actual game complete in box for, like, $12, right? <laughs> I... Now they're at least this time they're releasing games that are not twelve dollar games. I mean they're not rare games, but they're Mega Man X for the Super Nintendo, which is one of two twenty fifth anniversary or thirtieth anniversary Mega Man games that are coming out. Uh, it's Mega Man X for the Super Nintendo and Mega Man Two for the NES. Uh, both of them are going to be a hundred bucks. They're upping the production run this time to eighty five hundred. Again, it's a reproduction cart, but a officially licensed from Capcom. Comes in a sort of more or less stylized to look like the original box, but a, a updated take on it. Again, I I just don't understand why anybody would want them. Mm-hmm. I struggle with this, that what is the market for it? Mega Man X is a game that you could get the original one. If you're in it for nostalgia, if you're a collector, if you love Mega Man, you can buy the or you can buy a complete in box original cart of Mega Man X for about 100 bucks. Maybe a little bit more than 100 bucks, but once you factor in the extra $30 or whatever they're going to charge you to ship this thing, you're going to be about even and you're going to have the actual original thing that's you know, got some value to it. And Mega Man 2, you can buy that complete in box for like 40 bucks all day long. So why anybody would pay three times as much for what is effectively a repro, it, it boggles my mind. I've seen people wonder, this is Capcom, they've got plenty of games that were either 
not brought over to the U.S., not released in Europe. You know, games that are actually hard to get an official version to play, games that weren't translated, games that um, are are legitimately rare. Why? If you're going to release those in this kind of package, that would be great. That would give a lot of people who don't have access to those games a chance to play them, rather than you could any game store you can walk into and you can probably find a copy of Mega Man 2 and a copy of Mega Man X. You can definitely find them on eBay all day long, every day of the year, guaranteed. I say the market is probably uh, collectors, of course, because it's limited. Um, otherwise, you know, if, if this thing was not limited, it, it wouldn't sell hardly any copies at $100. So I think the the high price tag is is something no one's going to argue with. So it's definitely collectors, first of all. It's also collectors who have a nostalgia for Mega Man, um, obviously. Uh, And that's probably the reason why they wouldn't release games that didn't come over here, because there's not a market for them other than collectors or other than retro gamers. But this taps into the retro gamer, the collector, and uh, those with Mega Man nostalgia. So it taps into all three of those. And and that's that's probably it. I mean, that's probably why that it just taps into those three things. And the people who are in the center of that Venn diagram, there's going to be at least eighty five hundred of them out there, and probably no more. Um, you know, if they if they released twenty thousand of these, I don't know that they would sell out. Uh, but you know, it, it just it, I don't like it because it sound, it just feels scummy. Um, because they're doing it specifically to sell to collectors. They're taking advantage. I feel they're taking advantage of collectors. That's as simple as what they're doing there. And, and, and I think it's different than other companies that do the same thing. Limited Run Games, for example, they are also selling directly to a, a collector market, but they also don't charge 100 bucks per game, you know, for something that... And they're also offering something unique. You can't get those games that Limited Run Games sells in physical editions. This game you can. Uh, and on top of that, this isn't even an actually, like... It's not a it's not a true ROM board. It's a, a EEPROM or whatever they're called. It's a it's a flashcard, I believe. Like I was reading an article somewhere that it's not even like an original board. It's it's like a flashcard. Um, and I remember I don't know if they solved the issue, but I do remember with the Street Fighter Two, wasn't there like a, a risk of fire or something like? Or it literally said somewhere in the in the instructions like, don't put this in your system. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it was. I mean, the I think it's the voltage the voltage flux capacitor or whatever the hell is inside of these things, they don't make the right voltage anymore. So they, they have to use a different voltage and then try to clock it down to the right speed. And which is hard on the cart and hard on the console. Apparently now I'm not a, I'm not a fancy pants scientist or an engineer, (laughs) so I don't even pretend to know what all that means. Uh, but they don't. I know that there's no there's no fire truck warning on on this one. So yeah, this one does they... say specifically that it is an actual playable SNES game. So yeah. Anyway, on to the next thing because this is bumming me out. Yeah. Um. So uh, let's talk a little bit about drugs. Uh, oh, so <laughs> not and not just video games as your as your uh, your uh, metaphorical drug, but real life drugs. Um. So there's a story recently about a, a game collector who found drugs hidden inside a NES cartridge. Um, and there's not really a whole lot to say here other than it's that it seems kind of crazy. Uh, basically, he I would imagine that he probably felt the, the cartridge is heavier than it's supposed to be and opened it up, and sure enough, there's some drugs inside of it. I don't remember what kind of drugs. I don't know if they told us. Uh, they just have packages of what looks like airtight sealed 
something. Uh, could be if it's cocaine, it's a whole lot of cocaine. If it's uh, weed, it's probably it's probably more realist more realistically probably pot, I would guess. Um, but all that being said, uh, it's it kind of begs the question: if you as a collector were to find drugs hidden inside of one of your NES cartridges, what would you do? Do you notify the police? What if it's a rare game? Do you, if it's a rare game, would you fear that the police officer would confiscate the entire game and not just the, the drugs themselves? I really don't know how that works from a legal standpoint. Um, but it's kind of a conundrum. I, I, what would you do? If it was a rare game, I would certainly not contact the police. I would just <laughs> flush them and call it a day. Um, mm-hmm. I just think the, you're running the risk of them taking the cart as evidence. Once something goes into an evidence locker, like you're supposed to get it back once they've done, once they're done processing it and done um, it with, with the case, because they may need it in the case for to actually present evidence in court. So at best case scenario, you're looking at not having it for a very long time. Um, Depending on you, how, how realistic it is that they can, that they would do anything about it. I, so I guess I, th- I would just avoid the whole, the whole scenario and flush it and, um, and not, not tell anybody. And that is absolutely not my <laughs> advice as an attorney. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, I was there. See, if I were doing that though, I would be so afraid that the person who sold me the cart knew there were drugs in it. And that they're going to call the cops on me for having drugs in their possession. Now, how they would actually say they knew this person had drugs in their possession without admitting that they sold it to him. I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't think through that nearly as thoroughly as I just did. Um, but I would be afraid that they would somehow tip the cops into saying this guy has drugs. And then when they come, they would tear my house apart. They wouldn't find him because they already would have been flushed. Sure. But tearing apart my house, they would probably rip into every video game I have and open those up. Uh, because again, the person told them that, Hey, they had drugs in a video game. So they're just going to open up all of the video games without even concern about value or anything. Um, that, that would be my ultimate thing. Like someone's out to get me because it's such a, such a rare find to find a bunch of drugs in a cartridge that I would, I would have to think I'm being, I'm, I'm being played here. Something is not right. This isn't just a random thing, you know? So I guess what I would probably do is almost put like the, if it's a rare game, I would put the drugs in a different non-rare game and then call the police and be like, yeah, here's <laughs> here's the, you know, the drugs I found. And if it got so far down the down, if it was so if the person calling in the tip on me was so detailed as to say exactly what game it was that they put the that the drugs were in, then I'm, you know, you caught me. What are you going to do? I would <laughs> I would hopefully explain the scenario and be like, hey, this is a really rare game. I still wanted to do the right thing by letting you know that this existed, but I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what I do. I, it makes me wonder if that's why these things were found in games like golf, you know, like maybe that's what happened and they transferred them. You're right. They, <laughs> they took pictures and, and called the cops and whatnot. Um, but it, it, it's funny because in the article, they, they talk about how uh, the guy who found the drugs, it was actually two different games. It was he bought from a market. There was roller games and golf. And the only reason he opened them up was they, they yes, they, they felt heavier, but roller games was a, a PAL version. So it was the, the European and Australian cart. And I think the guy that uh, bought these was in like somewhere here in the East Coast, somewhere in like 
Pennsylvania or Virginia or something. Uh, somewhere down there in Polykill land, I think. <laughs> um, so he, you know, it's, that's not something that you normally find if you're not at a game store. You know, I don't see PAL Nintendo games just out in the wild a lot when I'm out perusing, you know, garage sales and whatnot. So it's interesting that one of the carts was golf because several years back there was a picture going around of another guy who had bought a golf cart and when he opened it up he found like five thousand dollars in cash in wadded up hundred dollar bills inside it so i guess the moral of the story is is you should just go buy up all the golf carts and uh, see what you've got in them (laughs) or open up your own carts and, and see what you can find have you ever have you opened all of your Nintendo games? I have not opened a single one of them. So really? there could be a lot of crazy stuff in there. I don't I also don't collect so like if the game is a fake, I don't care. I, you know, if it plays, it plays and that's all I really care about, you know. Mm. But yeah, I've never opened up a cart. Um, and I kind of want to open up uh, I have a Miss, Mickey Mouse capades and I learned recently of a of a possible easter egg with that game that one of the screws inside the game on the board actually is shaped like Mickey Mouse. Really? Um, yeah. And so I don't know if that, I, I want to know if that's like all the cartridges or if it just happened to be this one and it just happened to be a weird shape that kind of sort of looked like Mickey Mouse. It was on a video I saw. Um, so it's I like may open that one up. Somebody's toast looks like Jesus. Exactly. Very true. <laughs> Very similar. Um, so yeah, uh, but I haven't, have you ever found anything inside any of the cartridges? I'm sure you've opened plenty. Yeah. I've opened a lot of them. Most of the time it's just like dust, dusty garbage. And, you know, sometimes there's little paper residue and stuff inside. Never, I've never found stacks of hundos and mm-hmm. I'm a little, I'm a little sad about that. I'm sorry. Yeah. You should, you should put uh next time uh, you sell any games, put uh, masters of unlocking business cards in them. Ooh, that's a good yeah. idea. So yeah. then pe- people get it. They'll kind of like hear something rattling around yep. there and they'll be like, what the hell? They'll open it up. They'll see it was masters of unlocking. And then they will hate the podcast forever for potentially ruining their game and causing a fire inside their cartridge. And that's, that's the real treasure turning off yet another listener. <laughs> I know. As soon as we're get, we're getting down to zero listeners, which is that's our dream, really. I mean, we, we said should, this when we started this thing out. We were like, "What's our goal to have zero listeners?" Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We should have stopped there. right there because we we nailed it. <laughs> yep. Uh, we should uh, we we should rename this podcast "Masters of Dissuasion." <laughs> uh it's not too late. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of drugs and video games. And things that are illegal in video games. Okay. Okay. Yeah. You see I'm where I'm headed you. here? I think see so. See where I'm headed? You, you, you picking up what I'm laying down? <laughs> I you, think you, so. You smell what I'm cooking? <laughs> a lot of other 90s wrestling references. <laughs> Belgium, another country added to the list of uh, the growing list of countries now, growing to two, I believe, uh, who have deemed loot boxes to be gambling and illegal in their country. Mm. Good on you, Belgium, mm-hmm. is what I say. I don't care if it's gambling. I just don't want it in gaming. <laughs> Keep the waffles, Belgium. Yep. Ditch, yep. The loot, ditch the loot boxes. Unless they're filled with waffles. Oh, yeah. I mean, if funny. I had loot boxes showing up at my door that were filled with Belgian waffles, oh, my God. Well, I think you've, you've pointed on the inherent problem with loot boxes because there is no physical thing uh, mm-hmm. At all, so you would be getting digital waffles, and I don't know if that's very beneficial. 
And some boxes wouldn't have waffles. They would be like digital earwax flavored jelly beans. Mm, equally as good. I think yeah. we can all agree. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But one of the things that I thought was interesting about the Belgian law is that it's not just a, a fine. The publishers have to remove the loot boxes from their games or they face fines and jail time. So it's actually a criminal offense and not just a, not just a slap on the wrist and a fine. So they've, they've deemed FIFA 18, Overwatch, and Counter-Strike Global offenses. Specifically, all of them are in violation. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they react. Um, hmm. Battlefront 2, the Star Wars Battlefront 2, likely would have also been on that list had EA not pleaded Mia culpa and preemptively pulled it before... Um, before the Belgian legislature had to, you know, decide on it. It's interesting. I wonder how they'll even enforce something like that. I mean, they wouldn't, they wouldn't print unique packages or or print unique discs for those particular markets or have unique downloads for those particular markets. I doubt. It's probably what they would just do is is refuse any sort of transactions from that country, right? So the ability to see loot boxes, or I guess the the mechanism by which you would buy loot boxes might still be present. It's just it would not receive payments from someone who's in that country. Is possibly how they would handle that. I don't know. Well, and it's not just it's not just Belgium. The Netherlands have also came down and ruled that loot boxes are ga- are gambling, and they actually set a June deadline for removal. So that's you know coming up here in a in a month. So. Something will have to happen shortly. I'm sure we'll hear about it. It's interesting, though, that even within the UK, it's not it's not all every all all the countries in the UK are not coming down on the same side. The, the I'm sorry, in the EU, uh, the UK ruled that loot boxes are not gambling. So, and along with New Zealand, which obviously is not in the EU, um, although it would be you know it would be a nice satellite country. I'd sure like to visit New New Zealand like our friend Dean Lasagna just did. Oh, man, did he? I didn't he know. He did for like a month, man. That dude travels like no other. I'm man. so jelly, so jelly. <laughs> you went to uh, you went to you know the the GameCon. I mean, that, that's 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 pretty far. Mm-hmm. And tropical, just like New Zealand. Yeah. Although it's not. I don't know. I think it's tropical all the time, but Milwaukee is certainly not tropical <laughs> all the time. Ah, uh, man. Uh, so, uh, speaking of tropical, uh, tropical, let's see, tropical hot, hot weather. What's hot? Fire. Uh, mm. Firewatch. Firewatch is a game developed by Campo Santo, who was recently acquired by Valve, or is in the process of being acquired by Valve. Um, so, that's that's kind of our next story. Uh, in case you couldn't tell, that was a transition. That was a well-done transition. <laughs> you, you walked the tightrope of... Just masterful podcasting right there. Thank so, you. Well Thank done. you. Uh, so this is actually, I think, a, a story you posted here to talk through, but I guess I'm just going to hijack it. Uh, so Valve has uh, is acquiring Camposanto, the developers of Firewatch. Um, Firewatch uh, was a very fun walking simulator uh, game, won a lot of awards. Uh, this was the first game from Camposanto, I believe, uh, and yeah, what got, got notoriety, a lot of awards, great game, great game. Um, and so the sort of in, implication here is a couple of things. Um, does this kill the indie vibe of Camposanto 
and does this mean no more console ports of their games? Um, these great questions are ones that were provided by our own Scott. I just stole them from him. Yeah, um, well, I knew you you mentioned Firewatch and Campo Santo on previous episodes and how much you enjoyed the game. And so I just sort of wanted to get your take on this. This isn't like a, a, a real business topic, although it's a business subject matter. I just wanted to kind of hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, so I don't think it will hurt their indie cred. Um, I think we're getting to a point where indie games, the, the term indie, it doesn't always mean, uh, it, it it carries a certain amount of weight, sure. Um, generally, the, cons- I don't know. I, it's I guess almost more of a genre at this point, isn't it? Like a, like a theme? Yeah, I think so. I mean, when you think indie game, you probably, at least I do, I think games that are generally shorter games, uh, generally a little bit more willing to take risks um and generally have sort of a sort of more of an emotive type message um and those are all three things that i really like i I just really like short i like creative uh, i like emotion in the game i like narrative so i really like those things so when i see an indie game that's generally kind of what i feel and so i will kind of air, air toward that i i feel like Valve as a it's been a while since Valve has developed any games of note I should say um and so I don't know if the development environment of Valve is still the same as it was back during the Half-Life days um so, it's still the Half-Life days they're working on Half-Life 3 yeah of course it's coming it's, it's coming it's great come. <laughs> it's just down the road sure uh, yeah they'll I, probably I, at Campo Santo to to build it they'll probably change in the Valley of Gods the forthcoming Campo Santo game to just Half-Life 3 that's yep. probably it Half-Life uh, 3 Hashtag Valley of Gods. Yes, I think so. Um, but I, so so I, I don't think uh, considering that the if, if the development environment has changed, you know, it, it's really anyone's guess as to what this will do to Campo Santo. My guess is it won't really change them too much. I feel like and this is this I really have no basis for this feeling, but I feel like Valve would be the kind of studio to let developers do what they do well um, with with not a ton of. Um, oversight or, or a ton of uh, direction or to told telling them to go in certain directions. I mean, you don't, you don't, the Campo Santo is only known for Firewatch. You don't buy the developer who's only known for Firewatch and want them to create the next uh, Halo game. Like you buy them because that's what they did. Now, if Campo Santo had hundreds of games under their belt and Firewatch just happened to be the one that people really liked or the one that I really liked, then I could see that maybe Valve would buy them and tell them to do something else. But that that's the only thing they do. Why would you buy Camposanto unless you wanted them to do more of something like that? So I don't think that'll that'll change necessarily the direction. I don't think it'll change anything about them. My only fear, and it's a fear that you kind of alluded to in our notes here that I wasn't really even thinking about, is does this mean that future Camposanto games will not be uh, will not be on consoles and will only be um, on PC? Or, or in Steam, I guess, more more appropriately. Uh, and possibly, you know, possibly. And if that is the case, there's a very good chance I won't be playing any of their games. Not that I'm anti-PC, I just don't have a great computer, and I don't anticipate investing in any sort of gaming computer anytime soon. Um, so yeah, I unfortunately probably will not get to play those games. I might have to settle for just watching uh, playthroughs on, on YouTube and things like that. But also, to be fair, In the Valley of God's doesn't really interest me. In fact, when I saw it, I think it was E3 when it was announced, or at least when I first saw the trailer, I was a little bit bummed out because it just it felt too gimmicky. You know, mm-hmm. it's people hanging out in tombs 
we've had people raiding tombs before. That's been an actual game. Uh, and there's a, a photography mechanic, which doesn't really interest me at all. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not super excited like, about it. It seemed like it was trying to take a lot of the indie things and just out indie them. Yeah. You know, it was sort of the feeling I got in watching the In the Valley of the Gods trailer. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm I'm a big ancient history buff. I'm a big Egypt buff. And the, the game, the trailer did zero for me. So Yeah. And I th- part of it, too, is that, you know, Firewatch, as great a game as it was, there wasn't a whole lot of surprise to it. I mean, the ending, some people are, are some people weren't happy about the ending. Um, but it wasn't like a super surprising ending. And there's not a lot, they, they didn't do a lot with the medium. They didn't change the medium in a lot of ways. They just had a really strong narrative and a really cool looking game. That's really all Firewatch was. And so in the Valley of Gods, I feel like they're, they're, I don't have any expectations for them then to push the medium forward. So if all I have to go on is a story and visuals, well, I've already mentioned, I don't really care too much for the visuals in the Valley of Gods. And unless there's an incredibly engaging story there, but I, I have no, I have no evidence of that yet. So I guess once we start getting more about that, I might get a little bit, a little bit more excited. But who knows? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll definitely be keeping my eye on it. Uh, Campo Santo is a studio that I really, really want to love, and I want to see long-term success with them. Um, but you know, I'm only a partial fan. I'm only, I'm, I'm more a fan of Firewatch than Campo Santo. I guess is the best way to say it. Regardless, I guess it's good that they've they've sort of secured funding, right? I mean, right. it's a double-edged sword whenever you get acquired because uh, now you're no longer masters of your domain or masters of your own destiny, right? You're sort of at the whim of, of your ownership now. Um, but it, by the same, that the other side of it is now you've got uh, guaranteed cash support, right? And you've got the, 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 the wallets of valve behind your your creative endeavors and um so hopefully hopefully it's good for campo santo hopefully you know i think it's always everybody wants to have more more options i would be sad if it if it ends up meaning that their games are now uh steam exclusives or pc exclusives um you know but uh shock grief and powerlessness what are you gonna do <laughs> What a wonderful segue that was. So speaking of uh, of being um, full of grief, feeling powerless, uh, and indie games. Um, so yeah, you 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 clued me into this game called The Lost Levels. Um, and in these notes here, you kind of wanted me to, uh, I guess, just kind of talk about it. Because I, I guess what I'll do is I'll, I'll kind of talk a little bit about what the game is. And maybe by proxy, that'll kind of illuminate maybe why you thought of me um, with this game. It's uh it's it's an experimental game. Uh it's a it's an indie experimental game, very uh almost less a game and just more sort of a, a a small experience um in which you play as a character going through a series of, you know, 10 second long levels. Uh the entire game takes 3 to 4 minutes to complete. Um, I actually played it earlier this afternoon just to get a good feel for it. Um, but it's a it's it's a single developer who kind of wanted to gamify his uh, re- his life immediately following the death of his brother, I believe it was in mm-hmm. a in a bombing. Um, was it the Boston bombing? Uh, it no, it was a bombing at Manchester Arena ah, last year. You. Yes, yep. and the developer's name is Dan Het. Dan Het. Thank you, thank you. So, uh, so yeah, and it is kind of it's it's the type of game I really like. So it's a little bit of history of me. I've always been really into 
sort of these micro creative experiments. Um, back in the day of like Newgrounds and flash animation and stuff like that, I was really into like just short flash animation cartoons. Um, I was really into salad fingers before people knew what it was. Um, all this weird kind of stuff. I just really, really like the idea that you can um, express yourself in ways that aren't necessarily just words on paper. You know, a lot of times people think of of journaling and of expressing yourself as just words on paper, but why are words the only thing that's allowed to bring about emotion um, and to and to elicit feeling? And so I love when people use other things to do that. Sometimes it can come across very hokey. Sometimes it can be successful. But the point is, is that they're trying to exp- people are trying to express something or describe something without really being being able. They're they're using their their the medium they're comfortable with in order to describe something. So. I really like that concept, uh, you know, and and experimental games are, are one of those ways to do it. Now, what I have found, and unfortunately, that's it, it, this is the case with the Lost Levels as well, is that this these types of experiments lack nuance. Uh, they're very it's very overt in what they're trying to express. When you play through the Lost Levels, it's it's laughable to some degree in how overt and obvious this the, the message is here. Um, and now I say laughable cautiously because I don't want to make light of someone expressing like genuine valid emotions through the video- medium of video games, but it, it's not subtle. There's no nuance. There's no room for interpretation. He's telling you exactly what to feel and exactly what he went through. And that is that, that I don't really like so much. I like when people get a little bit more nuanced with it. Um, a really good example. So a, a, f- a few of these sorts of types of games. So if anyone's interested in this kind of thing, definitely check out the lost levels. It's still worth looking into. But for anyone else who's interested in this kind of thing, some other sort of indie experimental games um, is uh, Dysphoria. So Dysphoria is a game uh, that I recently learned about by Anna Anthropy from... Um, she's the author of Zeet, uh, one of the boss fight books uh, books that I had read and reviewed on my YouTube channel recently. Um, and it's, it's similar. It's kind of just a series of vignettes, a series of small 10-second little levels uh, that uh, try to convey the idea of, of, of Anna as she was going through, like, um, uh, her, she was, she was trying to find out who she was. Uh, she was born a male, but, but, uh, is, goes, goes, goes about life as a female. And so that whole transition trying to figure that out, uh, is what this game's about. But again, it suffers from that same lack of subtlety. There's literally one level where you're a, you're this weird shape trying to fit into a puzzle piece that you don't, that you don't fit into. And the whole game is you figuring out, oh, this puzzle doesn't fit there, and that's kind of it. That that's the that's the ten second scene. Um, so it doesn't it doesn't have the subtlety there. I think one of the, probably the most successful examples of this type of thing is a game called Passage by Jason Rohrer, and it's it's really old, uh, not really well, really old in the sense of video games and everything. I think it it came out in the early two thousands or something, uh, but super super quick game uh only takes a couple of minutes to complete you're sensing a theme here um but this one was really cool because it it's it's you know i'll try to describe it but at the same time the whole purpose of using the video game as a medium to describe a scene that you can't or describe a feeling that you can't text is i mean that's the point of using a video game medium so describing it's going to be very very difficult but um it uses mechanics and everything in a cool way it's essentially a, a long narrow uh, viewport. Uh, so you have a, a, a screen that's much narrower than your actual screen. And that's important because it can, it controls your movement. You can't go up or down very much. You're kind of always just walking forward. And the whole game is you living your life. You're a character walking from left to right, living your life as you grow old, the closer you get to the right, the older you get. 
Um, and you can make choices as you're kind of navigating. Like, uh, for example, you can choose to, um, quote unquote, get married, which is represented by you find this female and then you just kind of hold her hand. And so therefore now you're joined with her. But what's really interesting is that once you become joined with this person, once you're holding this person's hand, you're now too wide as a, as an entity on the screen. You're too, you're, you, you, you as an asset, as a pixelated asset, you're too wide to fit through some of the narrower corridors. And so being married essentially prevents you from then exploring and doing other things. However, if you didn't grab this person's hand and therefore you were able to fit through some of these corridors, then there are other things that you can now not do um, and there's trade-offs and everything. So it's just kind of a cool experience. And that's one of the more, I think, even as overt as that description I gave was, um, it's a little bit more nuanced than some of these other games. So I'm really cool into it. That, that was probably a longer uh, tangent than really probably anticipated with bringing this kind of thing up. But I really like it. If anyone out there is listening and has other um, recommendations for these types of indie experiment games, I would love to love to hear them um, and uh, play them. So there we go. And now I need to Google what the hell Salad Fingers is because <laughs> I'm slightly afraid to do so. It's imagine uh, imagine a, someone who imagine a weird child uh, or high schooler maybe creating a cartoon that they're specifically trying to gross people out with, but in a creepy, weird kind of uh, Tim. Uh, who's the guy who did Nightmare? Tim Burton. Tim Burton kind of way. Yeah. So it's it's again not subtle. Like it's. I don't know. Just watch it. It's 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 dumb. Um, it's not going to impress you by any means, but it's the kind of thing that uh, I don't know. I was just really into when I was. I think I was watching the stuff like in college. In college, a friend of mine, uh, my roommate, and I actually made a series of of uh, of flash animation cartoons, and so we were really into that kind of stuff. And unfortunately, we didn't do too many of them. I think we only made like three cartoons, three or four cartoons. But it was a lot of fun. And uh, there you go. Another little thing you didn't know about me, author, cartoonist, and uh, the other thing in the intro, gamer. That's it. Oh, yeah, gamer. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's a game podcast. <laughs> I'm adding I'm adding cartoonist to your intro from now on. Damn right. Yeah. Cartoonist back for a couple of years, uh, 2003-ish. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Fledgling cartoonist. There you go. Perfect. There we are. Yep. <laughs> All right. Main event time. Yes. Enough of this fancy, you know, psychological talk. Let's talk about dollars, dollar, dollar bills, y'all. It's cream, right? I can't, I can't pull that off. Is that right? Cream, <laughs> cream, cash rules everything around me. Yeah, Wu Tang thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I hope so. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like I'm an expert, but I, I hope that's right. Otherwise, I will get ridiculed in the non-existent comment section of this podcast. I'm gonna take your word for it. Um. I know it's not a Metallica thing. <laughs> uh, so my my experience goes downhill. But back to let's let's rein ourselves back in here <laughs> and talk about earnings season. So n- this is the time of year where both Sony and Nintendo have are announcing their their annual earnings for the fiscal 2017 year. Microsoft, we talked about a while back because I believe Microsoft runs on more of a calendar year. So they would have released their fiscal earnings uh, for their annual earnings back in probably March or February. So 
this past week, Sony and Nintendo both held their earnings calls, and both of them doing pretty well. Doing pretty well. That that share of Nintendo stock you have is mm-hmm. uh, still going up. Yay, I'm going to look it up right now. You keep talking. I can't wait to spend it all. Yeah, so Sony... Sony's been struggling a little bit outside of the PlayStation line. A lot of their TV market, their camera market, those are their their home audio market. Those are things that have not been doing well over the past, call it five years. Um, folks are struggling outside of 4K and outside of 4K really in general. The TV market is sort of stagnated. Um, 3D was was trying to be a thing and it wasn't and cameras now everybody's got a camera in their pocket that rivals most cameras that you would buy uh, you know unless you get into the real enthusiast stuff so playstation has really been the saving grace for sony and the playstation line continues to outproduce every other segment in sony the uh PlayStation gaming segment for Sony profited $1.6 billion last year, the most of any segment at the company. In fact, it was over twice as much as their home entertainment and sound division. So that's the televisions, it's the sound bars, speakers, AV equipment, the whole deal. That was less than than 800 million. So PlayStation is absolutely crushing it. And year over year versus 2016, the PlayStation division profit, now this isn't even revenue, profit increased over 50, almost 50%. It was $1.1 billion in 2016 and increased to $1.6 billion in 2017. And that's important to note because it wasn't like a year a new console was released, right? A lot of times you see a spike, uh, which we'll talk about with Nintendo next, where a company releases a new hardware property and that spikes uh, spikes revenue and profits. But this is the... 2017 was the fourth year, fifth year for in the PlayStation 4's life cycle. And I think a lot of this was was driven by, especially since it's profit, a lot of the hardware isn't sold at a huge profit. You know, a lot of it is either breaking even or or just a, a, a minor profit per unit. But a lot of this is being driven by first-party exclusives, things like Horizon Zero Dawn, Uncharted, the, the what was the new Uncharted? Lost Levels or Lost... Lost Legacy, or, maybe, or Lost, something like yeah, that? Yeah, that, that's it. Uh, and and near, you know, there's just been a a banner year for for Sony. I think next year, they're 2018. So this year, I think is looking looking solid as well. You know, you've got God of War, which is going gangbusters right now. It's just became the fastest selling PlayStation exclusive ever. Not fastest selling PlayStation Four exclusive, fastest selling game that PlayStation has ever had in their brand as an exclusive. It sold over three million copies in launch weekend, uh, which is astounding. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and this year there's there's still still more stuff down the pipeline that's you know people are excited about from uh, that have been announced things like Spider Man or or Detroit, um, so I, it'll be interesting to see if they are able to maintain such a robust pace like 1.6 billion in 2018. I I tend to think that you're not going to see as much. I think 
I think hardware sales will start to slow a little bit as a lot of the PlayStation 5 rumors that we talked about last episode um, continue to heat up. A lot of that will temper people uh, getting into buying things like um, you know, PlayStation 4 Pros and PlayStation VRs and things like that as, as more rumors start to trickle about, out about PlayStation 5. I think it'll be a, a banner software year. Yeah, but with uh, new console discussions, generally comes some sort of decrease or some sort of price reduction to the consumer on existing consoles, right? Or, or, or are you saying that uh, the rumors themselves are enough to possibly quell spe- uh, speculation, or enough to quell new purchases and really pricing decreases on current gen systems don't happen until there's confirmation of a release or this confirmed, you know, release dates for the new console? I mean, I think you've already started to see the price decreases. PlayStation uh, VR just took a, a hundred dollar price decrease um, a month ago or so, and you've seen the decreases on the base PlayStation Four, you know, as the PlayStation Four Pro came out. But I think as we start talking about what the next actual generation is, if we're even still in this generational mindset, we discussed that last episode a little bit. Uh, I think people just knowing that the PlayStation 5 is on the horizon a lot of times is enough to take a segment of people who may be weighing PlayStation 4 out of the market. Whether they're, if they don't have one already, they may just be waiting for the price drop when PlayStation 5 comes out. You know, if you if you are an Xbox One guy or if you are a Nintendo fan tried and true and you are thinking, well, maybe I'll get a PlayStation knowing that PlayStation 5 is maybe a year out, you can you start thinking, well, I'm definitely going to get a deal on a PlayStation 4 once that PlayStation 5 drops. Mm. I think the other silver lining to look at this is it seems like there's a thread for single-player story-heavy campaigns um, and not just the existence of them, but but really, really, really good ones, which as a fan of single-player story campaigns, I am I'm, I'm excited by that. Maybe I'm just seeing what I want to see in this, but it feels like a, 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 a common thread, right? Yeah, it, I love it. I mean, like you, I, I don't play online. If I'm going to play multiplayer, I want it to be local, you know, couch co-op, couch multiplayer, that sort of thing where it's local and you can have, have some friends over, have some beers and, and have a good time. Yeah, just looking at the, the list of games we just talked about, Horizon Zero Dawn, Uncharted, Near. God of War, Spider-Man, Detroit, all of those are, are single-player, story-heavy campaigns. It's its almost like Sony is actively trying to make their single, their first-party library almost like the anti-Xbox, right? I think, I think you look at a lot of the cross-platform games, and it's the stuff that's your big AAA titles that's all got the multiplayer it's all got the loot boxes it's all the stuff from ea it's all the stuff from uh ubisoft it's all the stuff from activision right and you look at the exclusives for the xbox line and it's been this way now for really three generations you look at the exclusives for the xbox line and they make no bones about being the multiplayer platform their exclusives are things like halo and uh gears of war and Sea of Thieves and all of the game Forza, a lot of the games that is just it's driving at multiplayer play and that's stuff that already exists in a lot of the third party market, which is really why I've be I've been a PlayStation 
first gamer by and large. PlayStation for the last three console generations has been my primary console just because of the uh, the breadth of the library that's available that you just I just don't see on on Xbox. And that's not to say that I'm anti Xbox. I don't make a lot of jokes on it, but I I just bought like. 800 xbox games <laughs> <Yeah>. so <laughs> that seems very pro xbox yeah yeah <laughs> but uh I, I going back into the numbers a little bit in 2017 sony we talked we talked about how not only is the software is really driving a lot of the the banner year for sony but it was also hardware you know the they came out with playstation it was really the first full year that playstation 4 pro was out the first full year that um playstation vr was out and they sold 19 million more playstation 4 consoles in 2017 it's the fifth year of the console's life cycle and it's now in its life cycle has now sold 76 million units and it's it's about to pass playstation 3 it's astounding that in the fifth year of a console's life it can sell almost 20 million units you know, we, we talk about how in the first year of Nintendo Switch, as we sort of transition into Nintendo's earning releases here, which obviously everybody knows Nintendo's crushed it this year. The Switch has been a massive, massive success. And ironically enough, Nintendo's profit for 20, their 2017 fiscal year was also $1.6 billion. So they are you know, right there neck and neck with, with Sony's PlayStation division. And Nintendo... we we talk about how it's so fast selling and they've sold so many switches. Well, now the, the switch, their fiscal year sort of lines up with the timeline of the switches release. Their fiscal year runs from uh, March 1st to, I'm sorry, from the end of March to March 1st, the next year. So that's why their fiscal year announcements are just coming out now. It's not a calendar year. So it's, it's pretty much congruent with the life, the life cycle of the switch so far. And in that one year of the switch, Nintendo sold just under 18 million of them in, in the first year. So, I mean, you, you look at that and you compare it to the 19 million PlayStation fours that were sold in, in 2017. And it really kind of puts that in perspective that Sony is still, still going strong. Hmm. That's crazy. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That's, that's insane. How big of a, a turnaround story the switch has been for Nintendo is it just can't be understated. I mean, yes, the Nintendo's always done well in the handheld market. The three DS was, was going strong and they still sold 6 million three DSs last year, but the, in 2016, whereas Sony's Sony's profit was 1.1 billion and it went up to 1.6 billion. Nintendo's profit in 2016 was $270 million. And now that sounds like a lot of money, and it is a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money for an entire company to make in a year, um, you know, especially a company the size of Nintendo. So you think of a, it basically went up 6x, and, and that is, it's almost entirely due to the Switch. They did have another contributor that you may have heard of, the SNES Classic, uh, they announced in their earnings that they sold 5.3 million SNES classics, which is pretty astounding. Definitely think they they've solved their their production problems that they had with the NES classic. It'll be interesting to see. Uh, they've announced that they're bringing the NES classic back at some point here this year. It'll be interesting to see how many of them they sell. 
Mm-hmm. Do you think the uh, success of those classic editions is one of the reasons why there hasn't been a virtual console yet? Nintendo is just never, despite the fact that they were almost, you could look at them as the pioneers of the virtual console, they've never truly embraced it for whatever reason. And they've never truly embraced mobile either. You know, they, for a long time, they were staunchly anti-mobile and mobile in the phone game sense, not mobile in the 3DS sense, right? The, mm-hmm. not the portable game console sense. But I, I think Nintendo is slowly evolving and Nintendo has always been slow to evolve. They've always been confident in the way they do things and it's it more often than not worked for them. So it's hard to fault them for that slow evolution. But I wonder now, Satoru Iwata obviously was replaced as president of Nintendo back in 2015, and he was replaced by Tatsumi Kimishima. And Tatsumi Kimishima just announced in the earnings as well that he's stepping down now, uh, and he is going to be replaced by Shuntaro Furukawa. And Furukawa has been at Nintendo for, I think, 16 years or something. So it's not it's not like they're bringing in new blood. But I wonder how much each iteration, you know, each each step along the, the presidential cycle for the company moves them forward into more embracing mobile, more embracing things like the virtual console. I, I just... I don't think that this will go through an entire cycle here without the Switch having a true virtual console. Yeah, and I remember I read something from uh, Kimishima. He well, when he took over uh, from Iwata, he was meant it was meant to be temporary to begin with, mm-hmm. um, and so I think over temporary to us to me means you know a few months, maybe a couple of years, um, but this is you know three years on or so. Um, so I have heard that one of the reasons that uh, Kimishima is stepping down is he, he he's explicitly stated like he needs someone in there who better understands the younger demographic and better understands what people want in these games. So um, that is, uh, I think that's that's really telling of him as a, as a president, like that he, he knows he knows when someone can do the job better. Um, so I would imagine that all of the sti- all of your your stipulation or all of your uh, guesses about uh, virtual consoles and, and maybe even more of a mobile focus will probably end up coming to fruition. I mean, uh, Fu- uh, Furukawa is the first president who actually grew up playing, um, not grew up, but but played Nintendo games in his relative youth i think he's only like 50 yeah. 55 he's, or something he's like that. 45 45 yeah so. yeah and and i misspoke he actually joined nintendo in in 2012 so he's only been there you know six what is that six years now mm-hmm. I, I can't math <laughs> yeah so i mean it is it is definitely a a, a change for them a, a younger guy i mean 45 is is young for any ceo let alone you know a a, a very tradition rooted company like nintendo mm-hmm yeah, absolutely. It'll it'll definitely be interesting to watch. I mean, he's he was uh, director of the Pokemon Company when he when he came on in in 2012. So he's you know he's sort of seen both sides of Nintendo's empire the the video game side and their kind of trading card side. And I you tend I tend to think of the the trading card side, even though that's really Nintendo's roots as being almost more in touch with the the younger crowd right and i don't know how much i think of that is just because when when i was running my game stores the pokemon kids were always like 
the six-year-olds running around, right? <laughs> so maybe that's just what I have in my mind. All of those Pokemon kids are now like 30, so. <laughs> yeah, they're not Pokemon kids anymore, that's no, for sure. No, they're, they're, they're not. But Nintendo, I mean, they're obviously they're they're going gangbusters and and they are slowly transitioning and embracing mobile um mario kart tour is still in the works that's not coming out until 2019 but nintendo's next mobile game is a big step forward from the stuff where they've dabbled before with things like super mario run and pokemon go which wasn't even really a nintendo game but their next game is they're partnering with Psy Games, who has made several mobile games before and, and has a, uh, a lot of experience in the mobile market. But they're partnering with them to create more of a traditional RPG. It looks almost like a JRPG or a you know traditional turn-based RPG called Dragalia Lost. Uh, and that's coming this summer. So that's actually their next mobile game. As part of the deal, they actually acquired 5% ownership stake in Psy Games. So you could definitely think that we'll be seeing more uh, more mobile stuff from Nintendo down the road here and, and potentially more traditional mobile stuff, which I think is, is only going to drive that 1.6 billion number even higher because the mobile market and the the freemium style and the microtransactions that are involved in that market are astounding mobile games just print money it's it's stupid <laughs> oh i like some mobile games i know you're not a fan but i do them every once in a while you would i do before we we wrap up here it's not all roses for nintendo uh have you seen this story about the switch getting hacked I have yes the frozen rocket which Usually, if we say the words frozen rocket on this show, um, we've gone off the rails somewhere. <laughs> but this is actually a legitimate article. <laughs> I want to know what kind of euphemism frozen rocket is. But <laughs> we can talk about that later. So the Switch hardware, the it, it was hacked by a couple of different hacker groups, I think, at the same time. And this is actually a hardware hack. So it's the... It's some, It's a hack that takes advantage of the USB recovery mode that's in the NVIDIA Tegra X1 chip inside the, the Switch. And the thing about it as a hardware hack is that it's not patchable. What are your thoughts? Hmm. I feel like... Uh, I, I don't think this is going to affect Nintendo at all, to be honest. I mean, there's going to be a certain segment of the population that will decide to if if this is pushed out in a way that anyone can kind of do it and anyone is comfortable doing it um then i think that that'll be a, a relatively small number of people um i think there's going to be a lot of people who don't want to ruin their their switch uh by doing this um and i think that nintendo will eventually come around to offering I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with it other than to say I don't think Nintendo's necessarily going to be worried. I personally am not a fan of hacking systems. Um, I am totally fine with paying money for a game if that game is available. And if it's not available, I'm totally fine with running an emulator, but I don't necessarily want to break my computer to do it. I've seen some articles talk, you know, doom and gloom about how this could be the the thing that makes the hiccup in Switch and and stops their momentum they a lot of them are an analogizing this analogizing and and a making an anal analogy. analgizing <laughs> yeah that's what i'm mm -hmm. going for yeah they're making an analogy how about that <laughs> making an analgy Got it. making it yeah they're making it 
uh, to like the Dreamcast, and the Dreamcast was in Sega's last system, and one of the big problems with the Dreamcast, and something that I think people incorrectly attribute its ultimate demise to, was the fact that it could just natively right out the gate it could play burned games you could take a dreamcast game pop it in your computer make a one-to-one copy of it to a cdr throw the throw the game into the dreamcast unmodified whatsoever and fire it right up and play it Um, some games were too big to fit on a cd so the sound had to be collapsed or, or modified but by and large you could you could copy dreamcast games without much work right and I think that's the important part and why that's a poor analogy is a there there was no modification required to the Dreamcast so even the layperson could do it with without having to uh, risk their hardware without having to do any sort of voodoo to it to make it to make it operate and B you didn't have to have any sort of know-how really in order to actually effectuate the game copy. All you had to do was, was it was no different than burning a CD, and at that stage, everybody knew how to burn a CD. You know, it's not something where you have to, you know, even if you just, ex- just taking advantage of the hardware exploit itself isn't enough to allow you to play burned games, right? You've got to then have some sort of, of either Linux on there that you can boot to and then go from whatever operating system you're throwing on there into, you know, an, an emulator like Dolphin or whatever, uh, in order to then play, play hacked games, um, or ROMs. I just, I think it's something that some people will do and some people will, I think most of those will be doing it on not their main switch, but like as having a secondary switch that they can just toy around with. So in that respect, maybe, maybe it drives a few more sales for Nintendo, you know, as people are picking up a a switch to play around with, to see, to see how this thing works. Because I think that the, just reading the article about how this exploit works, it seems like it's not entirely without risk. Mm-hmm. But I mean, Fail Overflow, uh, who's a hacker um, or hacker group, I'm not entirely sure if it's just a person or a group, but uh, they've already released a, a teaser video showing a Switch running the Dolphin uh, GameCube emulator. So, um, I mean, I think something... It, Something's coming. It'll be kind of cool to see what people do with the with the capabilities that could be unlocked. I I was listening to I think it was the uh, Retro RGB podcast, um, and Bob was talking about you know it would be cool if P- someone unlocked the ability to play DS games with it, and you could have the one screen be the gamepad and the other screen be the TV, uh, which might be <laughs> kind of that would be fun. That would be fun. I I don't know. I know my own personal tendencies as a professional lazy person that uh, even moving my neck to go from the screen, one screen to another is way more effort than I want to put into it. Cause you got to think like <laughs> the DS works cause you, all you have to move is your eyes. If you also had to move your head every time you wanted to go from, you know, map to map or whatever, um, it'd get annoying. I'm just, yeah. you know, yeah, you're saying you're probably, you're probably, probably spot on. You are so right all the time, Caleb J. Ross. When it comes to laziness facts, I absolutely am right all the time. And one other thing I'm right about is that it is 
goddamn time for this episode to close. That's mm. what I say. Mm-hmm. Um, so it bedtime. <laughs> that's right. Uh, so f- thank you all for listening to us. Uh, if this is your first episode, please. Uh, Listen to another. Subscribe. If you're not ready to commit to subscribing yet, which you can do by going to uh, mastersofunlocking.com, all of the subscribe links are there, or subscribing directly through whatever podcast feeder, reader, podcatcher that you're listening to this through right now. If you're not willing to to go ahead and and commit to subscribing, just listen to another episode. Maybe we'll win you over with that one. Um, In the meantime, though, uh, we do definitely love it when you guys talk with us online about things. If you have comments about anything we've talked about if you have answers to any of the questions we've thrown out there i know i asked a couple things recommendations for experimental indie games um go ahead and send those to us online i myself am everywhere at caleb j ross that's the letter j uh that's at twitter uh that's my website calebjross.com uh facebook youtube youtube is probably where i'm most active so definitely send me a comment uh you can find scott at vg collectaholic pretty much anywhere uh twitter facebook uh website vg instagram vg collectaholic he has lots of really cool pictures of his crazy huge collections there um i definitely recommend you check those out uh you can also find uh him uh, i just said instagram you can also find uh masters of unlocking on instagram as well um and i think that caught them all in mou podcast on twitter for masters of unlocking you can find us collectively there and you can find us collectively as i said at masters of if you ever forget where to find us online just go to masters of and all of the links to all of these social media accounts are there uh with that being said thank you again so much for listening and uh i hope uh hope you had a good time thank you so much Bye.